0: Okay, so, Carter, you know, I I spent a lot of time thinking deep thoughts in the think tank. I'm at a research institution like you. I'm in my virtual ivory tower, my real ivory tower. So one of my deep thoughts that I've got that I keep thinking is we need like a thousand people in my mind who are willing to make seven year commitments to really unusual places and speak non-mainstream languages. And I think we ought to create something like a special forces of the diplomacy world and do like an accelerated retirement and say, if you do two seven year tours, you can get some kind of accelerated retirement. So if you do seven years in Haiti and learn not French, but learn Creole, and then you do seven years in Garmser and you learn Pashto, at the end of 14 years, you've got like a retirement package. You can go have a second career. And I would believe in a country of 330 million people, we could find a thousand people like that and I say it a little flippantly and say, well, we send them to a one year master's degree of development charm school or one year's master's degree in foreigns." You know, I frankly think a lot of ex-military people, maybe some ex-missionaries, some ex-peace corps types. Maybe I actually think maybe it's more like ex-missionaries, ex-special forces types and send them to development charm school or diplomacy charm school for a year and create a special track for super duper hardship posts. I believe that the mainstream foreign service, and I'm very pro-development, I'm pro-diplomacy, has not produced this. And I believe, Carter, that much of the practice of development is going to be in complicated places. I could use other technical terms, but let's just use fragile and weak states. I don't think Afghanistan's a one-off. We're going to be in Haiti for the next several decades. We're going to be in a number of African countries that most Americans cannot really find on a map in ver- various ways. And I'm even talking security-wise, whether it's the Sahel or the Horn of Africa. Sometimes there's been some fragile places in West Africa where I don't know what it is. It's Wolof or it's Amara, right? Languages of the Horn of Africa or Dinka, right? Or Pashto. Dari's like learning Spanish. There's a lot of Farsi Dari programs and we have a large Iranian diaspora, which gives us a leg up. And we're a nation of immigrants, which gives us a leg up. But even still, we're going to need people to learn these languages. Afghanistan, we may not may not like it. And there's gonna be a temptation to throw in the towel and say, we're not gonna have to have another Afghanistan again. I don't believe that. I believe we've got things that rhyme with Afghanistan going on right now. And two, I'm not sure we're equipped civilian wise diplomacy and development for these kinds of super complex places. What's your reaction to that?
1: I think you're probably pretty familiar with SCRS.
0: This was Secretary Powell's attempt to kind of get at this. And there have been sort of various iterations of this For at least 15 years, there's been sort of resistance, I think, both inside the bureaucracy, but also I suspect couldn't get an acceptance on the Hill. But S slash CRS has been stood up and there's now a bureau of there's there's been iterations of it, right? Yeah.
1: So I turned to the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, CSO. I was at CSO for a while. I felt just like you feel now. And I still basically share what you've what you've said here, that it would be useful to have a cadre of Americans who are willing to go out places who know the language and are going to stay there for a decent amount of time. We could debate what the exact number of years that needs to be. You probably agree with me that what we want there is probably people that start no younger than 28. And so they're a little bit more seasoned than someone would be that's very young. They're taught the language well. They know they're going to be there for a while, but they know that also that it's going to be a limited time. So they're going to have more of a career after this.
0: The only problem is that we find is so you and I of a certain age, you meet somebody, you fall in love, you have kids and your life gets damn complicated. It's a factor in the calculation. I mean, should we be going to folks who are in their mid 50s and say, how about a third career or a second career? Should we be going to that route instead of the 28 year old?
1: No, I think people who are older can do it, too. But there probably is for most of this work when you're over 50, it's going to be more difficult to do. Not impossible. So I, I guess what I should say.
0: I'm getting up there. I'm, com- I'm, I'm bumping up against 50, Carter. So you're getting a little personal, but yes, that's right. So, so would you think below twenty eight or too wet behind the ears? Like you need somebody with a little bit of life experience, a little bit of street smarts? And someone who's a little bit more patient.
1: And that's not to say that people younger than 28 can't be patient, but there's a reason special forces, troops are older. This is part of something that's accepted. There's a reason in the State Department that they have the person who's going to be the political counselor or have some of those kind of roles is going to be a little older. It's just part of becoming naturally more familiar with the environment, more familiar with the situation. I probably wouldn't want to put a hard number on 28. I'd probably want
0: to be open. The human resource way of saying it is somebody with some work experience, five to seven years plus of work experience before doing something like this. How's that? That's what I think. And I wouldn't, and
1: I, and I honestly wouldn't shut it off to people who are in their 50s. It's probably a mistake for me to say that.
0: I think that's right. I I 100% agree with you. But what about this languages thing? Shouldn't we give people a full-ride scholarship? If you go and major in Pashto and then you give us five years of your career at the State Department, shouldn't we give you a full ride to Indiana University? Does that exist right now? I don't think that exists. But the problem there is probably getting the person who is doing their
1: undergraduate work or their graduate work to commit to that and then go through with things. There probably are ways that one can pay back student loans and such that I think is probably the A a way to go there to encourage people to get those languages. There are the facilities available and the government does have the ability to actually teach the person the language and give them enough in their first year to go out and get started. So if you're there for seven years or four years or two years, you'll be there enough to use the language. You'll be there for the language to develop. And it should be possible to make sure the person has to do that, to put certain requirements on the person for that to occur. The system right now isn't structured to have people doing this kind of work. There isn't a clear career track, and you've laid out a possible career track here, but I'm not sure if it has enough bureaucratic and political support for that to move through. And the other thing that's been an impediment for a while is concerns about force protection, concerns about letting people go out too far in the field lest they be killed. Benghazi has had a deleterious effect.
0: I don't want to say it's been politicized, but it's been kind of politicized, right? So the Benghazi thing, you could make an argument that the ambassador took a calculated risk. And so when you go in these complicated places like Libya, you're taking a calculated risk. And that calculated risk didn't work out. A whole bunch of other things happened that became kind of controversial. But the decision to go from Tripoli to Benghazi to go to a safe house was a calculated risk by the ambassador and his team to get some information and learn something because we said, we want you outside the wire. We need you to go and find out or go talk to some people. And just like you and I, when we go out of our house and get in our car and turn the engine on, we drive down the street, we're taking a calculated risk. We're not going to get in a car accident. Now there's a higher probability you're taking a higher risk if you're going to Benghazi, but it's analogous to that, right?
1: Yes, that's very much how I see it. I think the ambassador is a hero.
0: He was a total hero. The guy was a total hero. The whole team were total heroes. So I I 100% agree with you. We have to ask our diplomats and civilian folks, for better or for worse, we're going to be stuck with 20 or 30 of these countries that are weak and fragile states. where We have interests. We have diplomatic interests, national security interests, development interests. It's not just Afghanistan. A lot of them are hard to find on a map. They're hard to pronounce. You know, not one of the the four or five, quote unquote, normal languages we all learn, and they may not kind of have a Western tradition or whatever you want to call it. And so I'd like to think we're better than 1958 when we wrote the book, The Ugly American. But when I read your book, I was like, I've seen this somewhere before.
1: To me, the the trick to having civilians more involved for a long period of times and involved in a meaningful way with the embassy, worthwhile way that's really contributing. The big question to me has always been, is there a way that this can be put into the foreign service, both on the USAID side and on the State Department side? Is there a way to make that work? Is there a way that someone has the first part of their career doing the kind of work we've just talked about, and then the second part of their career, they switch to another track, if that's management, if it's political, but there's a way for them to off-ramp into this and then on-ramp back on to the main course.
0: I've not gotten a lot of uptake when I've had this conversation. I'm not saying they want to take my membership card away from being in the global development community, but they kind of want to take my membership card for being in the global development community. Like I am like some skunk at some garden party for talking like this. Am I wrong? I don't get a lot of like, oh, my gosh, Randy, thank you. What a wonderful idea. Let's do that. I don't get a lot of that. I get a lot of you're going to break the foreign service and you don't understand. I get those kind of answers.
1: I have many, many foreign service friends. And so I don't get the feeling that they are themselves against this. I get the feeling it's just hard to turn a ship. It's just hard to turn the State Department and everything is set a certain way. And at this point, it's very difficult to set up something new. And then that raises kind of the larger question of who's going to invest the political capital in order to make this happen? Who's the politician, the congressman or the senator that's going to push to create these changes to happen? Who's the secretary? Who's going to have the time? to protect this cadre to make it happen. Who is the John F. Kennedy that's going to be the patron of these special forces?
0: John F. Kennedy read The Ugly American. He bought 99 copies of the book. You know this history. He gave a copy to every member of the U.S. Senate. The Peace Corps, USAID, the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, the REORG and making the AID, and the U.S. Green Berets were all direct functions of The Ugly American. The Alliance for Progress was a direct response to this. Now, I would argue that President Biden, in theory, could be that president. He was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He understands the value of diplomacy and development. I'm a Republican, but you could also argue this is a person who is the most prepared to engage in places like the Western Hemisphere. He made eight trips to the Northern Triangle as vice president and made another additional eight trips to the Western Hemisphere as vice president. So this is the best prepared, most engaged president we've ever had in our U.S. history on the Western Hemisphere. This is probably one of the most prepared people we've ever had on things like diplomacy and development, the conversation we just had. He would follow this and all of his folks would like nod their heads. So I think this is an open question, but he could be that person. Second, Samantha Power is a really smart person. You know, uh, Tony Blinken's a really smart person. Jake Sullivan's a really smart person. Look, there's a constellation of serious people. Bob Menendez is a very smart dude. Michael McCall, very smart dude. Some very serious people across the political spectrum so I guess here's my parting question for you, which is, okay, th- this has been horrible and I don't even like talking about it in clinical terms. This has just been miserable and awful to sit through and watch everything that's happened in Afghanistan. I wish we hadn't left. I know that I'm in, I was in the minority. I don't think we should make foreign policy decisions based on like public opinion polls, frankly. And that's easy for me to say in my virtual ivory tower. I don't have to be the politician to do this, but. I think the opinion polls dropped from 70% to less than 50% once they saw what happened. My parting question for you is, is this a kind of a cathartic moment for the country where to say, like, I'm not hearing anybody say I want to throw in the towel and just come home America on everything. I'm not hearing that. And second, is this enough of a crisis shake up or hit bottom moment For us, that it gives us this opportunity to kind of think about some of these more profound things. I'm still processing. I'm going through the stages of grief. I've got anger and denial and and everything else. Bargaining. Is this enough of a hit bottom moment for the military establishment, the foreign policy establishment, the development establishment, our political establishment? to say, we can't build a wall around ourselves, we are interdependent in the world. And two, maybe the kind of tools or approaches we're using, maybe need a significant revisit. What's your response to that? That's a good question about whether this moment
1: makes us determine not to be isolationist, whether it reaffirms that we want a role in the world and whether it makes us determine to show to our allies that we're committed, and to show to our adversaries that we're still here we're not going to let you take things if it makes us decide that well we've lost one democracy here and that was perhaps inevitable but now we're going to fight all the harder for democracies elsewhere in our own democracy In in, in a way i think it's a nice way of thinking about it
0: i i don't know so yet Carter, would you would you argue i would argue that afghanistan had a democracy did afghanistan have a democracy
1: i believe by definition afghanistan still had a democracy now, was it, it does not rate highly in terms of strength of the democracy due to the problems in the last two elections there, but it still had a, a parliament that had authority over the budget that existed. The leaders were still determined through some kind of democratic process. Now, certainly in 2004 was clear democracy, but I guess I, I should say the last three elections were problematic. So I would still view Afghanistan as a democracy. As an
0: imperfect democracy, but had significant accountability moments with the voters. But all these things, we said to women, run for office, be your mayor. Be a journalist, participate in the public debate, participate in the workforce. And they said yes. And so like 20 or 30 percent of the workforce, the Afghan workforce, were women. Is Afghan society significantly transformed from 20 years ago? Is it a different place than 20 years ago, Carter? Oh, the
1: Afghan society has tremendously transformed since 20 years ago. Now it wasn't transformed enough to stand up on its own, but yes, women had more of a role, especially in the cities, than they had had previously. Having jobs, having greater education, yes, the free press is one of the most impressive things about Afghanistan.
0: The freest media in South Asia was in Afghanistan.
1: I have no doubt of that matter. Having you know, I've spent a decent amount of time with their media there, and it's look at the Afghans who are the lead writers for New York Times stories. That alone tells you how impressive they've been in this. So. Yes, Afghanistan did change. It did improve. And for almost the entire 20 years, in certain places like Nazari Sharif and, and Herat, there was peace. And those people lived and prospered and did better. And even places like Helmand, for periods of five years to as many as 10 years, there was peace in some of those areas. Now, but, but in the end, it couldn't hold together. In the end, there were other reasons that, that things fell apart. And so what we don't know is how long are those gains going to last. It'll be hard for the Taliban to turn all of them back.
0: Communities that had girls in school may not want to kind of turn the fall, you know, turn that off, you know? So, isn't there kind of on the one hand, aren't you having communities saying, I actually like girls in school and I saw girls go from kindergarten through university to the workforce and I'd like that to continue? A. And then B, is the Taliban somehow changed? Is that a thing, if you will?
1: That resistance is a problem for the Taliban in the. People want, may not automatically listen to what they have to say, and if the Taliban want to suppress it, they may get some international condemnation, or with what remains of the press in the country, some condemnation there. That reduces the speed at which the Taliban can push things back, but we already see that they are pushing things back. The Taliban have the power of the gun behind them. They are going to be able to suppress things when they want to do so. Have the Taliban changed? Yes, they have changed. They, I don't think they're going to go stoning women in public. I don't think they're going to have mass executions in in public. I think they're much more careful about terrorism than they were in the past. But at the same time, they have some foundational beliefs that are there that aren't going to go easily away. They believe very strongly in their interpretation of Islamic law. They believe very strongly in the creation of Islamic emirate. Just like last week, what did we see? We saw basically the restoration of the Islamic emirate with no members of the old government or neutral, people who are neutral, put into positions to, to run any, any
0: ministry. This is a, quote unquote, an interim government. Do you believe that? The Taliban has said a number
1: of things to us. And at this point, I've learned that it's best not to believe what they say. It's best to watch their actions. And sometimes their actions are compromising. But for most of the things that we've wanted to see the Taliban done, they have not done them. So we'll see if it ends up being a temporary government or not. And we'll see if it is a temporary government, if the new government ends up being more inclusive.
0: How dangerous is it in terms of, is it going to become sort of the Harvard University of terrorist training centers again, like it was 20 plus years ago? Whether it's, whether
1: it's the Harvard University or the Yale University, or Stanford University, it's possible it won't be as thriving as it was there. It is pretty likely that terrorists are going to come back to Afghanistan it's pretty likely that the Taliban won't want to see attacks coming out of Afghanistan, but they aren't going to eliminate all the groups that are there doing things. So there's a reasonable chance of a threat coming out of Afghanistan to somewhere else in the world, including the United States. But it's also extremely hard to say that that threat is going to be of the magnitude of 9-11. It's probably likely to be something much smaller. And if that threat does occur, there's a decent chance the United States can just be resilient and not have to go back into Afghanistan to, to, to fix it. So yes, is Afghanistan likely to become a place where terrorists are? In the future, yes. Is it likely to be a big threat to the United States? Well, hopefully not.
0: Okay, so is terrorism a problem we just have to manage? Sort of like, you know, polio or something else? Like, we're not going to eradicate it? Yeah, I think we need to be resilient. It's something to manage. It's something to deal with. Yes,
1: like polio, like COVID. It's something that we just have to handle. You know, President Biden had a tough choice, staying in Afghanistan with a small number to manage the problem or leaving the country, enduring the pain we've now seen and being resilient to terrorism. I think both of those were viable choices. Both of them are a very hard, difficult choice to make. Hopefully now having left, that we don't find ourselves having to go back in and that we try to avoid going back in. Having left and paid the costs, resilience is probably the better way to go at this point.
0: How geostrategically big of a cost are we gonna pay for having left Afghanistan? Because I, I would argue, I think the administration, if I was trying to be objective and not emotional about this, is making the following calculus. One is that the American people don't care at some level. They wanted us out and they don't, they don't like feeling like bad people. They don't like feeling like they've screwed over some of our allies. But in the grand scheme of things, they'll move on to the next hurricane or the next. Pandemic, or the World Series, or Thanksgiving, or something else. So that's one calculus. And two, I think the the larger argument was this is drawing too much of our energy and attention. And if we want to be quote unquote hard headed realists about this, the real show is China, and the real show is Russia. And so every marginal person focused on Afghanistan is one less marginal person I can put on the China or Russia problem. Is that? in essence, the simplistic un- summary of sort of how they th- are thinking about this? I can't say for sure how they're thinking about it. I think,
1: you know, like you, I, I, I hear various things and I, I can't say that I'm the best place expert on that. From what I've heard and what I understand, I broaden it a little bit from what you just said. It's not just that you can put another person on China, another person on Russia. It's that you can focus more on the problems in the United States. It's that you can focus more on economic development in the United States. You can focus more on countering the pandemic. You can focus more on climate change. Is you know, when Americans are in combat, that attracts the attention of the president and the vice president, of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of the secretary of defense, of the secretary of state. All the decision makers have to focus on that. So by being out of Afghanistan, it allows them to focus on bigger things. And one of the most precious commodities in government is the time of the principal decision makers. They can now do more in, the, in these other areas. I mean, I've said for a while it's hard not to find that argument compelling. In the grand scheme of things on Afghanistan, you know, I think we will pay some geostrategic costs in the short term. In the long term, though, there is good cause to think that we won't. I mean, we recovered from Vietnam. And if I want to use another example, I'd say that, the, that Great Britain recovered perfectly fine from the loss of all the American colonies. So a great power, superpower can take a defeat and return as long as it has a good strategy afterwards.
0: Carter, this has been great. You've written some really important books. One is War Comes to Garmser, and the most recent book you wrote was The American War in Afghanistan, A History in 2021. Go out and buy and read Carter Marcasian's books. He's at the Center for Naval Analyses. I think he's one of the smartest people in town. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Carter. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for your time. You're really generous.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog